to the Bible at Mosaic, and we're going to spend a lot of time in God's Word. I mean, we just are. I haven't found anything better than that. I don't have any advice or tips that I can give you that will be better than the authority of God's Word. And so here at this church, you can just count on it. We're going to have long periods of sinking deep roots into Scripture, and Romans is like that. And the fall will be in Romans 5 for the whole semester, but today we wrap up Romans 4. And the gospel, as we've been discovering in Romans, really has two dimensions to it. Okay? The gospel has two dimensions to it. God saves and God reigns. So if you're thinking through the gospel in Romans, if you go all the way back to how we began, the gospel is the good news that God saves and God reigns. God saves. This is the vertical dimension of the gospel. This is between you and God, between me and God. There is a problem, and in Christ Jesus, God has reconciled us who are separated from God to God. God saves. This is the vertical dimension, so to speak, of the gospel. But there is also a horizontal reality, a horizontal dimension to the gospel. The good news is not merely that God saves, so that would be good news enough. The good news is also God reigns. God rules and reigns over all things. And key to the promise that God would rule and reign is that he would do it through the offspring of Abraham. This is a part of the story of Scripture, and if you did our Life of Abraham study and men and women's Bible study this spring, you know a huge part of the story of Scripture is that God is going to exercise his kingdom. He's going to establish his kingdom, his rule and reign, through the offspring of Abraham. And this is where we find ourselves today. You see, God had promised that he was going to restore the world through the rule and reign of his chosen offspring and his beloved and holy people. And today we discover that a central part of the good news of the gospel is this. Abraham's heir will rule the world. Abraham's heir will rule the world. So who is this heir? And how does he take up this inheritance? Okay, So Abraham's heir is going to rule the world. And this is incredibly good news. Paul thinks it's good news. And yet oftentimes I feel that for us, we're far more concerned with God's salvation of us, which is good news, absolutely, than we are with the equally good news that God is going to rule and reign the world. And in doing so, he's going to refashion it. Are there parts of the world that feel broken to you? Yes. There are parts of the world that feel broken to me. The good news of the gospel is not merely that God has saved us from a broken world. It's that he's going to remake the world whole again. It's good news. He's going to do so through the offspring of Abraham. So let's look at this. I'm going to read Romans 4, and I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read a portion of it. I'm going to read verses 22 through 25. And afterwards, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And there's an invitation for you to give thanks and to say, thanks be to God. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So now this, this last part here, is rooted in a promise. It's rooted in a promise. And this is what Paul is getting at in the first few verses, verses 13 and 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He goes on in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. 
not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now remember, who is Paul speaking to? He's speaking to the church in Rome. The church in Rome is made up of two sets of Christians, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And over the course of Romans 4, Paul has been using Abraham to make a point. And the point is this, sin has broken everybody and redemption and salvation is possible for anybody because of one very particular somebody and that somebody is Jesus. You see, Paul has been trying to say, listen, all have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3, and that everyone needs God to supply righteousness on their behalf. And the Jewish Christians are going, well, yes, but we're righteous because we're the children of Abraham. And so Paul begins to use Abraham in Romans 4 to demonstrate that it is not merely the Gentile Christians who need God to provide righteousness, but it is also the Jewish Christians as well. That everyone stands in equal need of something they can't get anywhere else but God's grace through faith in Christ. And so here, Paul continues to advance this, and he points them all the way back to the promise. Because Jewish Christians are probably going, well, yeah, but Abraham was promised some very specific things. And he was. If you go back there, if you go back, oh gosh, years ago now, it feels like 10 years ago, when we were doing our whole story sermon series, we said God really promises four things, and we gave them to you as four Ps. And if you're just joining us, or if you're new, or if you joined the last year and you're taking notes, this might be four things to write down, because we use them as kind of the pillars of the story of Scripture. God had promised his presence, his presence, that God would be with his people. God's promising his presence will be with his people in a place that he will give them so that they can shine forth his purposes. God's presence, God's people, God's place, God's purposes. This is the whole story of scripture. This is Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. This is Abraham going to the land of Canaan. This is the exodus of the people of Israel into the promised land. God's presence in the midst of God's people and God's place to showcase God's purposes. You see, this had been the promise all along. This had been the hope of Eden, was that Adam and Eve would live in God's presence. They would reflect his purposes as they cultivated God's world, and they would be fruitful and multiply as God's people. This is what God had given to Adam and Eve, and it's what they failed to do in rejecting God's rule and reign for their own, and this inverted what God had created. Because we were created to live as heirs of God's rule and reign, and yet Adam and Eve chose to rebel against it and kind of go get their own on their own. To go do things the way they wanted to do. Not in submission to God's rule and reign, but to do things on their own account. To do things in their own way. And yet God was faithful to continue to advance his hope for the world and his promise to the world. And he was going to do so through Abraham. And so the Jewish Christians are going, yes, Abraham was promised some very specific things. They're saying, we're the descendants of Abraham. Don't we have special access to those promises? And what Paul is saying here is this. The true Israel, the true children of Abraham, are not those who are biological descendants of old Abe, but those who have placed their faith in God and are faithful to God. Those who have placed their faith in God and are faithful to God. This is what he says in verse 16. This promise depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, the Jewish Christian, but also to the one who shares the faith 
of Abraham. Now, why is this important for us? Well, from a history of redemption, it's pretty crucial because I would imagine many of us are Gentiles. So us having access to the promises of God is a pretty crucial reality for us to live in fellowship with God. If not, then we're all in trouble, right? But beyond the history of redemption, Paul is saying something very clearly here that he has been saying clearly, and I know it feels redundant, but my heart forgets it, and I bet yours does too. The promises of God rest on God's grace and not on your works. The promises of God rest on God's grace and not on your works. That's good, because if it rests on our works, those promises are probably not going to be fulfilled, because our hearts are often faithless. See, to be a Christian is to become a part of the true Israel. It's to become a participant in the faith of Abraham, a faith that's marked in believing upon God, trusting God with one's whole self and life. Look at verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see, God is ruling and reigning, and he has a plan which is to establish his kingdom through his people, through the offspring of Abraham and the children who follow in that inheritance. See, God is saving a people for himself that he will then use to extend his rule and reign over the whole world. This has always been the plan, and it's still God's plan today. And this God who makes a promise to Abraham, This God who says, listen, through the offspring of Abraham and his descendants, those who share the faith of Abraham, I'm going to rule and reign over the world. This is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And I love that so much, this phrase, this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I love that. Our God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the God of Abraham. This is the God who created the world from nothing. The God who brought life from Sarah's womb and Abraham's frail body. This is the God who resurrects. And this is a beautiful way to talk about God's work of salvation in our lives. The God brings the dead to life. That he gives and create something that did not exist before, the gift of faith. See, our hearts are born to be faithful to God. That's what we were created to be, but because of sin, we are born lacking faith in God. And so faith has to be created within us, given as a gift. We call this doctrine regeneration. Regeneration. We are born with a hard heart that does not give faith to God and faithfulness to God. And in regeneration, God replaces our hard heart with a soft heart that gives faith and faithfulness to God. You see, God creates something where nothing existed. He gives faith where there was no faith to begin with. And this is what God does. And it's a beautiful way of conceiving of God's king. What will God's king be like? What will Abraham's true heir who will inherit the world be like? Well, I imagine he will be a rightful heir who can give life to the dead. He will be an heir who can call into existence things that do not exist. And listen, this person was not Isaac, Abraham's son, promised son. No, 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 the son, the promised son, the rightful heir who would be able to give life to the dead, who would be able to call into existence things that do not exist. No, this would have to be a far future for Abraham's offspring. 
It wouldn't be any of the biological descendants. It would be one who would come, who would come from God the Father, who would be sent as God the Son and into the world, would bring life to the dead and call into existence things that do not exist. You see, it's a beautiful picture of God's work in our life. It's a beautiful picture of God's promised king, the heir of Abraham, and it's a beautiful picture of what it means to extend God's rule into the world. You see, why was God sending Abraham into Canaan? Why was he sending Israel into Canaan after the Exodus? Why are we sent out into the life of the world from the gathering of God's people? Do you know why? So that we can be a people who speak hope into a a world where there is death and darkness. That we can bring the light and the hope of a God who brings resurrection in the face of darkness, who brings hope in the face of hopelessness. You see, the promise that God had for his people, the promise that God has for his son is the commissioning that he gives to his people, which is to be a people who speak hope in a world of desperation, who bring light in a world of darkness, who bring life in a world of death. So Paul says that this promise was for all who share the faith of Abraham. Not for a particular group, not for the radical few, not for the right biological descendants of this right old man. No, this is for everyone. Why? Because the promise rests on grace. The promise rests on grace. But he's commending Abraham's faith here. Look in verse 18. In hope, talking about Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring breed. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, hold the phone here. It begins by saying Abraham's faith is hope against hope. What does that mean? Eugene Peterson translates it this way, and I think this is really helpful. When everything was hopeless, Abraham still believed. When everything was hopeless... Abraham still believed, deciding to not live on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God had promised to do. Now, does that capture the tension of our lives? The tension between what does it mean to believe in the face of our incapacity, our inability Did you catch that? Because Abraham's faith is not in how great or how strong Abraham is, but trusting in what God has said. And there is often a tension here, and there's a lesson for us to learn. Between our hope and God's timing, there is a tension that pulls us into trust in God. And some of you are caught there right now, in between what you hope God will do, what you know for sure you can't do, and the timing of God's provision. That's where we live most of the time. God, I hope that you will do this. I know that I can't do it, and I'm waiting. I know some of you are there right now because I pray for you as you're caught in this moment, as you're caught in this tension. And I know that some of you feel faithless in the middle. You feel like your trust is too small. If you could just trust a little bit more, if you could just believe a little bit harder, if you could just do a little bit more, then God will be faithful. And let me tell you, God is not waiting for you to exhaust yourself before he blesses you. He's not. 
And I know it's easy to believe it. I know it's easy to feel like if I could just run harder, believe stronger, be more faithful, then God will give me the desires of my heart. I know. I've been there. But Abraham's life, Abraham's life is a testament that God so often grows us in our trust when we fail to trust him. If you, if you were in our spring Bible study, you know when Paul says no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, you're thinking, are we talking about the same Abraham? Because if you're familiar with Abraham's story, it seems like unbelief makes him waver concerning the promise of God quite a bit, right? I mean, Abraham is called by God in Genesis 12 to go to the land, and by like Genesis 13, he's trying to like pass his wife off as his sister because he's scared. So it can feel like, whoa, what's, what is Paul talking about here? Because some of us have studied him, and Abraham routinely looks like he's distrusting and unbelieving towards the Lord. And there's no doubt, Abraham's life, like yours and mine, is marked by missteps. It's marked by distrust, unbelief, and doubt. But Paul is reading Abraham's life through his faith displayed in one crucial moment. Because there was a moment that came after many moments of faithless failure, a moment of decision. What was that moment? It was Abraham and Isaac, right? If there was ever a time for Abraham to distrust God, isn't it that one? Like after all of God promising he was going to send him an I, a son, after all of that hoping and waiting and looking and dreaming and thinking and praying and faithlessness and missteps, God finally provides Isaac, the promised son. And then what does God call Abraham to do? Give me Isaac. You know, we read this story and we say, Why? Because this is what Paul is talking about here, this belief of Abraham. Why? Because God knows something about us. God knows that our hearts, once we have received a blessing from God, they so often close up to God. Once we have gotten from God what we want, well, now it's easy to step away from his presence. God gives Abraham his son and then says, do you trust me? Do you believe? And you expect that Abraham's not going to, right? I mean, if you look at his life, you expect that, listen, if Abraham does with Isaac what he has done any number of times with other things that were precious to him, He's going to find some way around this. He's going to try to trick God. He's going to try to bargain with God because this is what he does. But that's not what Abraham does. He takes Isaac up the mountain. You see, in that moment, Abraham believed. He trusted. He hoped. He believed in the God that gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He believed it because he had seen it happen. And see, this is one of the many wonders of God's gracious work in our lives. He grows our faith even in the moments of faithfulness. But how does he do this? By demonstrating to us that he is still faithful to his promise even when we have failed our own. You see, Abraham was prepared for the call to give Isaac to God. Why? Because even in all those faithless moments of failure, God was still faithful to him. 
See, we think that our faith will grow strong by strong expressions of faith and strong expressions of faith alone. We think that if we are going to have a really strong and rooted faith, the only times where our faith will grow is when we win. But many times our faith grows when we fail and God remains faithful. And if you haven't been there yet, you will get there. Because failure and bottoming out, waiting in desperate hope, it comes and it is coming. And Abraham, he was living in the shadows of that moment. You see, because he couldn't imagine that his willingness to bring Isaac up the mountain would one day be carried out by God the Father in the sending of the Son of God. And while God stopped Abraham's hand from sacrificing his son Isaac, God the Father would not withhold the sacrifice of his son Jesus. You see, Abraham trusted God with what he knew in the moment of faith. Abraham believed that God could bring Isaac back from the dead, that he could resurrect him if that's what it took. Even when it was asking for the most costly thing Abraham could imagine. Abraham, in the moment of decision, he believed. And yet the story is not just the strength of Abraham's faith, though it's a testimony. The story is that Abraham's true heir, the rightful heir of the world, not Isaac, but one who would come much, much later, he would not be the son withheld from sacrifice. He would be the son who would become the sacrifice. You see, Abraham's rightful heir, the chosen offspring, is not the son that is saved from death, but the son who saves us through death. This is what Abraham's story is pointing to. And this is why Paul is telling the church, Gentiles and Jews alike, he's saying, listen, you have been saved by Abraham's offspring. He has taken upon your death in himself. And in this death, he has conquered the power of death. See, Paul moves right from this expression of Abraham's faith and trust. And in verse 22, he starts to turn our attention, not to the momentary heir of Isaac, but to the eternal heir of Christ. Look in verse 22. That is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, we are invited into this faith the faith of Abraham, by believing in the Son who rescued us through death. By believing in the Son of God who conquered death, the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham, the one who would come into the world to rescue the world from the power of sin, shame, and death. Like Abraham, God invites us into this faith by demanding of us the things that we hold most dearly. You cannot come to Christ for salvation if you will withhold the most precious corners of your heart. If you come to Christ for salvation, he will demand from you everything and then he will give to you far more abundantly than you could ever think or imagine. This is what God does in Jesus. This is what Abraham was demonstrating in the shadows was required for salvation, was to say, God, from what you have graciously given me, I now give everything back to you. See, this is the life of faith, and this is the testimony of Abraham. God gives us the gift of faith so that we can give our whole lives back to God. Because we're born into this world unfit for God. And we can only receive the salvation of God if we're willing to lay everything else down. 
This is the faith of Abraham. This is what Gentile and Jewish Christians in the church in Rome are invited into. This is what you and I are invited into to believe that God will keep his word, that he will keep his promise, that God is not going to abandon us, and that whatever we might be holding on to outside of God will never be better than God himself. Eugene Peterson, he translates this verse this way. But it's not just Abraham, it's also us. The same thing gets said about us when we embrace and believe the one who brought Jesus to life when the conditions were equally hopeless. The sacrifice Jesus made us fit for God, set us right with God. The sacrifice Jesus made us fit for God. See, we're born into this world. We were created to rule and reign in God's presence, reflecting his purposes in God's place. But by nature, we reject all that. We want our own kingdom. We don't want God's kingdom. And we cannot begin to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God until we've been made children of God's family. And yet we can't be made children of God's family because by nature, we reject God. We're spiritual terrorists. We're looking to destroy everything that God is looking to establish and to, in its place, put our own kingdom, our own versions of it. Abraham's life was the same kind of life, marked by faithlessness, marked by wandering around. Even with all the promises of God, Abraham kept trying to do his own thing. But then in the moment of decision, Abraham trusted God and said, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he brought Isaac up to the mountain and God stayed his hand because there was a son who was coming who would say to God, not my will be done, but your will be done. And yet God's hand would not be stayed. It would not be kept. This son would go to the cross. There would be no goat, no lamb caught up in the brambles that would be provided for this son, this rightful heir of Abraham. He would be the lamb and he would be the priest. He would be the one being sacrificed and he would be the one offering sacrifice. This is Jesus Christ, both the lamb of God and the chief priest. This is who Jesus is. He's the sacrifice and the sacrificer. And he does all of this, not just to save us, but so that he can then through us begin to remake the world, to restore the world, to exercise God's rule and reign, to be ambassadors of a new and better kingdom. You see, the son of God, Abraham's rightful heir, the promised child to Eve, the one who would make the world, he would do this through death and resurrection. For our sake, it will be counted us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does it mean to be made fit for God? What does it, be mean, uh, what does it mean to be made right with God? It means to be reconciled. You know, all those songs that we sang before I preached, they're all full of glorious truths. I'm a child of God. There's no guilt. There's no shame. The power of fear has no hold on me. The power of death has no hold on me. Do you believe that those things are true? That's what it means to be made fit for God. To be made right with God means that all of those things that we've sung about, that they're actually true and that they're the most true things about who we are, and that on the foundation of their truthfulness, we can live lives marked by faithfulness to God. Like Abraham, not perfect, but faithful when it counts. Knowing that God is faithful when we're faithless. I want you to close your eyes with me. I'm not going to do anything weird. I promise. I'm not going to put you on the spot. just want you to imagine something with me. Just as we end our time together. We've been in Romans 1 through 4 for 16 weeks. Imagine with me this. 
the crowd in Prisca and Aquila's home in Rome begins to breathe a little bit easier. For the last 15 minutes, what for us has been the last 16 weeks, the room had been tense as Phoebe read the letter. Paul sent with her to the church in Rome. She, she pauses to take a sip of wine. She looks out across the faces of the room, some whom she knows, some who she doesn't know. Some people are crying. Some people have left out of anger. Others are locked into arguments in the corners, in the pockets of the back. The kids are making a racket. The room is thick with the energy of expectation. What's Phoebe going to say next? What has Paul written to us? She takes a deep breath in. And she says, therefore... Since we have been justified by God, we have peace with God. Little do they know that she's about to read the words of one of the most explosively rich, gospel-centered chapters in all of the Bible. And we listen, waiting for the next word. Let's pray. Father, you have invited us in to hear your word. May we be like James calls us to be and not merely be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. For the last 16 weeks, God, we have soaked in the good news of the gospel that God saves and God reigns. And today, who do we see in our heart's eye, in our imagination, the same one who we begun with in Romans 1, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, the rightful heir of Abraham, the rightful king of the world, fix the eyes of faith in our hearts upon you. God, this summer as we dive into the Psalms, may you wash us with the water of your word. May you help us to see how our whole hearts can be brought into your presence when we are sad, when we are nervous, when we're anxious, when we're worried, when we're angry, when we're joyful, when we're delighting, and when we're in despair. God, I thank you that your word never returns void. And I pray that through the preaching of your word, you would produce a harvest of righteousness in our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.